Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. In the 1980s and 1990s, the cliffs of Sydney's eastern and northern beaches became the hunting ground for packs of youth intent on beating and killing gay men. It's suggested that up to 80 men may have been killed in gay hate-related crimes during the period, with many deemed suicides despite available evidence to the contrary. Sadly, these murders and bashings occurred at a time of institutionalised homophobia within an indifferent and often inefficient New South Wales police force. It was a period that continues to haunt author Duncan McNabb, who was serving as a police officer at the time, and is captured in his latest non-fiction book, Getting Away With Murder. Duncan is the author of 10 non-fiction works to date and won the 2017 Ned Kelly Award for Best Non-Fiction Crime for this engrossing and often troubling insight to Sydney's shameful history. Hello Duncan, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Duncan, what was the New South Wales Police Force like when you joined in the late 70s? Mm, complicated, I think would be the right way to call it. Um, a brutally effective police force, um, at the same time a little culturally out of step with the changing values in Australia, a police force that had, in this case, homophobia entrenched in it. Um, in those days, too, I still remember when I started in, gee whiz, 1977 at my first day in the New South Wales Police Service, everyone was bleached white. And if you wanted variety, you're either Catholic or Protestant. And there wasn't much difference, which was curious when you're an atheist like me. But um, that was what we were. We were bleached white, not a sign of multiculturalism, possibly a couple of people from Eastern Europe or origins, rest of us white and Anglo-Saxon. It was um, The first couple of years were fascinating, I suppose, because you're... In, embedded into what was a brotherhood and very much a brotherhood because out of about a hundred odd blokes um, we added about two or three females to our class as well so police women those days weren't very commonplace either um, and they could look forward at least in the short term to a career of talking to kids in schools or directing traffic um, outside school so you know, not a huge career path um, and if they were fortunate, and that's how it was looked upon those days, they would do some criminal investigation duties interviewing either kids or victims of sexual assault. So very much a very male blokey brotherhood. Um, and for the first couple of years, you think it's all pretty cool. I mean, you're doing some exciting things, you're investigating crimes. Um, and then you start to think about it and you start to notice that some things weren't quite right. Um, corruption was prolific. Uh, starting with the simplicity of um, coppers, for example, picking up a few bucks by alerting funeral directors to a dead body so they could get there first and pick up the job, or calling tow truck drivers to make sure that the towies would get the, the job on the hook, as they used to call it, um, and pick up a few bucks for that. That's the simple things, uh, free food expectations. I remember one copper said we were having dinner one night in a restaurant and uh, he said to the owner, who he, first time this bloke had been there, he said to the owner, um, is there a police discount? And the owner looked at him strangely and had no idea what it was about. And my colleague then looked at him squarely and said, in all honesty, have you ever had a brick through your window? Really? So that's where it starts. Then we sort of move up from that simple stuff to the slightly more complicated stuff. And Roger Rogerson, who mm. I've babbled on about some, some length over the years, Rogerson's a perfect example. Arranging crimes, picking up money from armed, hob armed robberies, sitting down and doing what they say, doing business with a criminal, saying, well, you know, we can lighten it up if you give me a bit of cash. And around about that time, drugs were becoming 
the currency of crime in New South Wales. We'd moved on from um, things old-fashioned, armed robbery, safe jobs and all that sort of stuff, and the big money was coming into drugs, which meant big money for coppers. You were part of Division 21. Um, yes. What was their focus? Uh, 21 Division was the training ground for anyone who wanted to be a real detective. So you did a couple of years in uniform. They would then select you for criminal investigation if you wanted to go, or in, you know, sort of reasonably bright and capable. Um, they would then dispatch you off to 21 Division, um, which pretty much cruised Sydney. It was a, a, in part a blunt weapon. Um, if there was a brawl, for, if, sorry, if, if there was, for example, hot spots of problems, uh, pubs where people were getting unruly, coppers being beaten up was always a catalyst. Um, 21 Division would arrive en masse, lots of young, fairly fit fellas in suits, and go and sort it out. But what it did, in its real set, apart from being a blunt weapon, it was there to train us in things you needed to know, how to work the streets, how to see trouble coming your way too, which when you're working the cross in those days is always prudent, um, how to talk to people, how to deal with crooks, how to deal with victims. So it had that softer side, which is usually forgotten, but I learned a hell of a lot. And you worked in some cases with terrific detectives who take the time and understand that their role is to mentor you. Um, the blokes I worked with, they still remember them. They were scrupulously honest and bloody good at what they did. So where does it fit in then with the... We should remember and state that homosexuality at that time was still illegal. Mm, yes. So part of the role of the police would have been to seek out homosexuals? Is that um, the appropriate term? Yeah, the 21 Division particularly did a lot of that sort of stuff in the old days. And there was an edict out, uh, God, from the 50s, where we had a commissioner in New South Wales called Colin John Delaney, who not only was a bit on the bench side, but had this massive hatred of gay men. Uh, I think he described um, homosexuals as the greatest threat to Australia, even more so than a communist. So Colin sort of set that ethos, and when I arrived, some of his um, acolytes were still in senior positions. So, yeah, it stank. That said, the bulk of coppers did give a damn by that stage. People think, oh, OK, if you want to do it, just don't scare the horses and the children and don't do it in public. Um, there was an old copper at um, 21 Division who was obsessed by it. Um, he had a couple of interesting quirks as well of his own. Um, and he would often try and inveigle young coppers to join him at the town hall toilets in the hope to persuade blokes out of into something somewhat lewd. And we just said, oh, mate, give it a break, will you? But it was still happening those days. They used to call it peanutting. And... Um, Yes, a sort of a winsome young copper would go and loiter in a public lavatory, wait for an approach from a gay man because, you know, still illegal, gay bars weren't very common, meeting places were hard to find, so public toilets were fairly busy. Um, and then having suitably inveigled the young constable, the sergeant would then pounce and you'd be locked up. I mean, complete waste of time. But it wasn't just the locking up of these individuals. Often there was a bit of a beating associated oh, yeah. as well, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah. By the time I got around, it wasn't that common, but certainly in the 60s, yeah. Um, it was open slather. There's a copper who's often lauded as um, a great man called Bumper Farrell. Bumper was nothing more than a thug. Um, his pleasure in life was walking around King's Cross finding gay men, trannies and all that sort of stuff, dragging him with laneway, giving him a flogging and telling him not to be caught in public again. Um, yeah, Bumper was a hero, well, not to many of us. How did this institutionalised homophobia that was put in place by the former 50s and 60s mm. management of the police, how did that affect the relationship with the gay community then for Sydney police? It such was as utterly appalling. Um, the first meeting 
I think, between the gay community and the New South Wales police was in fact involving myself and my um, workmate. Um, we had been policing in New South Wales, and around the world for that matter, is often driven by what's on the front page of the tabloids. And in the very early 80s, I think it was about 81, 82, um, child prostitution, child, kids using drugs and that sort of stuff was pretty much out of control in King's Cross. So they formed a squad at the CIB to deal with the problem. You know. This is when Premier Rand stepped in and, and yeah. created the new CIB. Yeah, uh, yeah it was, it was, we were an add-on squad to it. Um, and our job in life was to go and clear it all up, which we did. And not so much arresting kids, but you know, getting them sorted. Some had to get arrested, sure. Getting them sorted, getting them home, getting them into care and making sure that the people who were running them, um, drug dealers, um, pimps and so on and so forth, were locked up as well, you know, just get them off the streets, which we did fairly effectively. Um, and it was around about that time we sort of persuaded the, uh, our hierarchy against their will that we really need to go and talk to the gay community, which at that stage was becoming quite a, a reasonable political force. Um, and a lot of the kids working the streets were gay prostitutes, so, you know, common sense. Um, I, the first meeting, one was hard to arrange, and secondly, I remember the two blokes we spoke to from the gay community were not terribly happy to see us, and my workmate wasn't too happy to see them. So it was, and they were perfectly justified because they'd cop crap for decades, um, and they were very apprehensive that this was some sort of strange setup. It wasn't, but nothing much came of it, to be honest. But at least they knew who we were, and they knew that our agenda, at least the one we were telling them, was to just try and prevent stuff. And that was pretty much the first meeting, but it was, the, the climate was horrendous. It was shortly after the 1978 Mardi Gras debacle. Well, I was going to ask you, you mentioned that they were becoming a political force, but the 1978, the very first Mardi Gras march, was a protest in sense. And I understand it was originally authorised by the police, but what happened then? It started as a protest meeting to try and get um, decriminalisation of um, gay, for gay men on the, on the agenda to try and kick it along. Uh, they started off with permits, which you needed in those days. Um, the Summary Offences Act, from memory, was still with us. They got a permit from the New South Wales Police. It was all moving quite nicely in civil fashion down Oxford Street when the coppers decided it was probably prudent to pull the permit, say it's an illegal, um, illegal gathering, and then move in to disperse it and or arrest people who didn't disperse. And then it was on for young and old. And it ended up coming to an end in the cross with massive arrests of um, activists or just average people wanting a bit of justice. Um, it was a complete and utter disaster. But the New South Wales Police didn't learn much from it because a couple of years later they're still doing the same thing raiding gay clubs. I mean, they just didn't get the bloody message. It took a lot of years. The New South Wales Police and also the New South Wales Government seem to be about 10 years behind other parts of Australia. And you've written in your book that around 1972 that murder seemed to actually be one of the key impetuses for change. And this was the murder of uh, Dr Duncan, who was, seemed to have been thrown into a river and drowned. Yes, Dr George Duncan was... Um came back, I think he was in Australia originally, um, educated in the UK, a law lecturer. I think he le lectured in Roman law. It's quite interesting, if nothing else. He came back to Adelaide um, and decided one evening to take a wander down to the Torrens River, which was a well-known gay meeting place, right just off the CBD in North Terrace in Adelaide. Uh, George went for a wander down there one evening. What George didn't know was that the vice squad coppers, a couple in particular, their sport was to go down and throw blokes in the river or beat them, or both. 
So poor old George is strolling down there. He meets up with somebody. Everything's looking quite nice. Until the buffheads from the vice squad arrive, they grab poor George and his mate and hurl them in the torrents after a decent beating. Poor old George can't swim, so George drowns. Um, his blokey was with managers to drag himself out of the torrents. And in this, for me, a just remarkable coincidence, he comes upon a good Samaritan who takes him to hospital. I think the Good Samaritan was, in fact, also cruising the beat, but that's neither here nor there. The Good Samaritan turns out to be a bloke called Bevan Spencer von Einem, which nearly caused me to pass out when I read the Adelaide Advertiser's report because von Einem went on to be a serial killer. So the Good Samaritan didn't turn out that well. But Duncan's uh, death caused an absolute furor. The coppers tried to close it down, didn't want to know, can't find any suspects. An almighty brawl erupts over what's going on. Curiously enough, um, the people really getting angry about what had been done to him, in fact, the Liberal Party. And um, I can't remember his name. Is Oh, Robert Hill's father. Uh, so there's this huge blue on in South Australian politics, which eventually led to the Dunstan Labor government decriminalising it, the first. The rest of Australia didn't follow with any great haste, I have to say. Yeah, that was 1975, the yeah. decriminalisation of, of, of legal consensual sex between men. Um, it gets to, let's rush ahead to about 1981. You're working at um, Monavale by that mm. stage, yep. and you're called out to Collaroy Surf Club, which at the time, or you're soon to learn, becomes known as one of the stations of the cross. Ah, yes. What, yes. what did you find there? Um... It was first in Brighton early, um, congratulations, there's a possible murder. Because we thought the old guy, I still remember his name, I still remember his face. We thought the bloke who was the victim of a terrible beating in the toilets would probably die. So, you know, that's on the level of seriousness, that really takes off. We went up to the Colorado toilets. Um, the uniformed coppers had done a great job. They'd sealed things off. We got the scientific people around, all that sort of stuff. Um, so everything was right if it became a homicide investigation or the investigation of a very serious assault doesn't matter. Uh, the difference, as I keep point out ad nauseum in these things, is the difference between a murder and a serious assault can sometimes come down to pure luck. Do you, do, let me interrupt there and just say, do you enter each of those investigations that it could be a murder because you are almost potentially waiting for the person to die? Yeah, you treat it as serious as possible and anything, of the res anything uh, above that is a bonus. Um, you hope that it's not going to be a murder, God forbid, but you treat it as the most serious crime you can lay your hands on because it has to be done properly. Um, not only because it's the appropriate thing to do, it's also the legal thing to do. And one of the great failings of another case we'll probably chat about shortly is the coppers failed horribly. So you treat it with the utmost seriousness when it happens. And there's a man lying in a coma, not expected to live in Royal North Shore Hospital, then you assume it's going to be a murder, and if he survives, that's bloody great. In this case, it was touch and go. And a couple of days later, um, he was able to be interviewed, and my mate, who was the same fellow I'd, I'd actually been uh, meeting the gay community with about a year later, um, one of the nicest detectives you'd ever meet, and a very gentle soul, uh, he and I wandered in, and I still remember the look on the bloke's face. He was more terrified of us than he was of telling his story than of what had happened to him because he saw, I, I always thought, he saw his life being completely destroyed by what we'd do, by being outed. And that was his fear that you would actually out him? Yeah. He, he, he thought that he, he, had, he lived very quietly. He was a senior bureaucrat. 
Um, no one was supposed to know what he what his private life was like. I subsequently spoke to some people when I wrote my last book. He said, oh, yeah, we remember him. Um, but you know, that's the way things are. Um, and he just, he was, didn't want to, he couldn't remember anything. And we knew he could. Um, why were you there? Well, I just out for a drive. It was a hot night, that sort of thing. He wasn't going to tell us anything. And he had a complete blank in his memory. And at that stage, I just walked out and thinking, isn't this bloody sad? Because we knew what he was there for. We knew he'd gone to a gay beat. It was common knowledge. Um, but he was just terrified to tell us, which is so bloody sad. What does that do to you as a policeman, though, when you see these crimes being committed and you can't do anything about them? It's enormously frustrating. It also makes you think about what they... Th you put yourself in his position, which is what I like to do with an investigation. You look back and think, well, why doesn't he want to talk to us? And you think, well, an entire community that's been brutalised for generations, why would he trust us? Why would he trust us with not one not only the circumstances of the crime against him, but also trust us with being discreet and talking about his life. And he just saw the entire thing collapsing like a house of cards, so he just took the beating and kept quiet. Bloody sad. Well, I think it's, you mentioned in your book that following the, um, the riot of the... Well, not the riot, but certainly the, the punch-up that installed after the Mardi Gras debacle, mm. that the Sydney Morning Herald went ahead and published the names of all those who'd been arrested and many of those had never been outed before, hmm. and it, it had the potential to ruin lives. Absolutely, and it did ruin some lives. I would imagine that after they published that too, there were a lot of interesting conversations with family members or close friends, or in some cases, well, possibly not husbands and wives, but certainly family members and friends and work colleagues who had no clue, all of a sudden are reading a name arrested at a gay demonstration in the city. Thanks very much, John Fairfax. Stupid decision. Stupid, brutal, completely unthinking. Um, and back in those days, too, a lot of reporting of um, crime was done pretty much a, running a press release from the coppers because you had to keep your sources sweet. And asking a question to the New South Wales Police Force was definitely not on. Tell me about the gay beat. What is a gay beat? Just usually um, somewhere discreet, as discreet as a public toilet can be, or somewhere um, a headland, a bush area where... It's curious, uh, something I looked about when I was writing about it, is that they're also reasonably proximate to car park or public transport, so there's access, sort of, and also getting out of the place. And it's just a place where men would congregate back in those days because there was nowhere else to go, so they would congregate and meet, um, have sex or something or other, or just get to know each other really closely, sometimes have sex, sometimes just have a conversation and arrange to meet somewhere else, more discreet perhaps. Some guys you talk to actually enjoy the slight touch of adventure and danger about being in a beat. But the problem was with gay men knew where the beats were, criminal gangs of youths also knew where they were, and coppers also knew where they were as well. I mean, it's what police do. But the youth gangs were a real problem in the, in the mid-80s because they then decided to target gay men for a, a litany of social reasons, I think, back in the, in the mid-80s, decriminalisation, the arrival of AIDS, um, the huge publicity about AIDS. Well, let's break that down. 1984, it becomes legal. Yep. So it's decriminalised. And then it seems to actually set off these gangs. It actually hmm. seems to be almost the trigger point for Sydney to erupt in these regular acts of um, complicit violence between organised groups. You know, you've, you've labelled them, or not you, but certainly labelled at the time, the Bondi Boys and the Tamarama... Tamarama mob, then the Bondi Boys, boys from Waterloo, yeah. and kids on the northern beaches as well. Um, 
I suppose a couple of things. I mean, youth gangs are often motivated by similar things, a sense of dis- disenfranchisement, um, particularly um, in this case, also the vulnerability of their targets, which make the target easier. They know they won't fight back. They also know that they've got a police force that may not be robust in investigating the attacks. Um, so it's a perfect target for them. Plus, they're on the front page so they can feel good bragging to their mates at those bloody poofters they gave a seeing to. Um, it was a really intriguing time. Not oh, sorry, something I've forgotten too. Not only do we have decriminalisation, putting things on the front page, AIDS wreaking havoc, all the idiocy that was talked about AIDS um, was just utterly appalling. And then, on top of all that in New South Wales, you have um, senior politicians from all shadows of politics screaming loudly about the abhorrence of gay men, of the spread of AIDS. Fred Nile, ever delightful, wanted to levy gay nightclubs so that the levy could be used to pay for hospitalisation of those blokes who got sick. All this completely insensitive, brutal tripe. And then, of course, two ALP members decided to start... um, rumours that Sydney was being run by a gay mafia, that they were all pedophiles and yada, yada, yada. Um, just an appalling climate. And these stupid, impressionable thugs in youth gangs thought, well, here we've got a target, and isn't it a good one? So for a couple of years, um, they focused on gay, you know, on gay men. They knew where the beats were. And I think there's a curiosity in some of these people too. The oddity of them is that some of their gang leaders were probably gay themselves, so there's that sort of question of an internal turmoil they're taking up by beating people. I think it's Alan Rosendahl who, in 1989, seemed to have experienced the same sort of situation as far as his attacker being confused with his own sexuality. But in this instance, it was someone who, well, was on the police side of things. Yeah, Alan Well, Alan had a very interesting moment. He didn't know what was going on until he read about it in the Herald about 25 years later. Um, Alan was, uh, oh, he beat out and had a few drinks. He went to the taxi club, which was normally the last resting place before the night ended. Um, in the wee small hours of the morning, he got to a toilet south Downing Street in Sydney. Um, he remembers wandering inside, looking around to see what was happening, just thinking, oh, yeah, I'm drunk, but let's go and have a look. Um, he was set upon by a car load, probably three or four, of paling or something similar, wielding thugs who chased him across South Dowling Street, which is six lanes of traffic in Sydney, but pretty quiet at that hour of the morning. Alan running as fast as you can, being chased by these blokes. And he tripped and fell and stopped, of course. The thugs then set to him, beat the living tripe out of him. Again. Carrying sticks or uh, Sticks or, or palings or right. similar. Uh, that's what he thought. He wasn't sure. Um, he and winds up in St Vincent's in a coma for a while. Uh, again, a case of... He could have been dead, treated as a murder, and hope the poor bugger survives. But the New South Wales police turned up where he was still gaga, um, took a few details from him, he thinks, and didn't ever come back. He's in hospital for a week. No one, copper's not spotted. He thinks, oh, yeah, tra- chalk it up to bad experience, you know, it happens, and moved on. He's a really solid, terrific bloke. And he's like, you know, it's happened, just move on. Which he did, years and years and years later. He's reading the Sydney Morning Herald and he comes to an article written by Rick Fenley, who's been doing a lot of work in this area for years. And Rick has interviewed a bloke who said, I was driving along South Dowling Street one night where I saw this guy run across the road and then be set upon by all these thugs wielding 
sticks or something or other. Alan reads it and says, holy Jesus, that was me. The timing is about right, you know, everything, everything fits beautifully. Um, the gentleman who saw this happen stops, drives past a few times to try and calm things down, runs off to get help. Um, but he very wisely noted the registration number of the car containing the thugs. He gets back at the scene, everyone's gone. Alan's been presumably scooped up and gone to hospital and the assailants are gone. Um, so he goes to one of the gay anti-violence pro projects and a couple of weeks later gets a phone call saying, oh, you need to come and have a chat to us. Uh, we think the, the car that your registration number you've taken is a police car. Really? Mm, yeah, which whereupon certain things proceed to the fan at high speed. He's then given the Rolls-Royce treatment by the New South Wales Police Force and is taken into headquarters into a lofty part with lovely harbour views, um, lounge, big desk, lots of flags, all that sort of shit, lounge. So, so this is really the opposite. It's not that they take him into a cell and try and intimidate him. They actually try and schmooze him the mm, other way. They give him the rolls. It had to have been, given, given the view, and police are very funny about these things in those days, the better the view, the higher the rank. <laughs> um, and right. from, having worked in the same building, when he described the room to me, I thought, oh, this is very serious. Oh, this, is up, this is up in the absolute top echelon. Um, and he's there with the gay liaison officer who's a former member of parliament who was doing a great schmooze job as well. And anyways, he's placated by a senior copper saying, it's all right, we've had problems with these people before. They're being dealt with. Bullshit. Um, he gets one of his minions to come in and shows a police baton to this bloke. And he looks and thinks, God, that's what they were building the fellow with. So he's actually built, he's been built police with, with police batons. Yeah. From the series. Yeah. So this is, and this is shortly thereafter. So every, don't worry, everything's being looked after. Don't you worry about a thing. A bit like Joe Bjorki-Peterson, don't you worry about that, we'll look after it. Well, they didn't. Nothing we can find ever happened. Flick forward to the Herald, things come together. The two blokes meet years later and they compare stories and they're thinking, that's got to be me lying in the gutter and the other bloke's saying that's got to be me who took the rego um, they become acqu acquainted the New South Wales police get a couple of complaints about this and they haven't done well they've done an investigation which would embarrass the hell out of any detective I know no we don't think it's the same incident see you later we have no records to prove anything up yours and so that begs the question why are there no records if he's had this particular meeting they should have got rid of well the record there are no records of that meeting it's completely and utterly off the books by the look of it um the member of parliament who became a liaison officer is long since dead um and the senior coppers probably had a lovely career and aren't saying a word um, there are some possible records but in new south wales these records are in fact covered by a hundred year rule so Hopefully at some stage Mr Rosendale's solicitor will be able to rattle it out of them so he might get a couple of suspects. Again, they're, not, they're passing it off as one that's something that probably didn't happen or it's two unrelated incidents. It looks like one incident to me. You, know, you look at it realistically and you think, it's too much of a coincidence. And anyway, why didn't you investigate it? But they've done something that would professionally embarrass me. Uh, the New South Wales Ombudsman was complained to and they just whitewashed it. Was this a particularly personal book for you? I mean, you've written 10 books to date on you know, for everything from the biker gangs to mm. the waterfront to Roger Rogerson. But did you feel this one a little bit more? I probably hated writing it more than anything else I've ever written. Um, yeah, it was hard work to write. Um, 
It's also had a lot of... When I wrote that book too, there were suppression orders from the coroner's office left, right and centre, all at the request of the New South Wales Police Force, which made it interesting to write. Uh, fortunately, most of those have now been lifted. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough time, and it really was... It's the hardest story of the New South Wales Police. It actually shows something... With Roger, writing about Rogers and all the other blokes, you are talking about corruption. Um, this is actually far more brutal than that. This is that very human, very sad, sad story, and one that should have been resolved but hasn't. And I think it's that lack of lack of completion by the New South Wales Police Force which really pisses me off, and it still does. Um, and you know, you talk to people about it now, even years later, and everyone is still bloody angry. It was preventable. Compassion shows that you could have actually done something about it. The work of Steve Page shows what can be done. And it's interesting to see that the Tarradale stuff, which was beautifully handled, the coroner was quite damning in her comments on the New South Wales Police Force. There's a feeling I get when dealing with some police that, you know, this was all a bit of a joke. Who cares? The coroner may have got it wrong. Uh, Don't be annoying. Go away. You're a pest. and I find that really frustrating. They don't seem to have learned that this was a rotten period. Do something about it. Don't let it happen again. The, the book itself covers what, what has to be considered decades of failures in reporting, let mm. alone scene recovery as such. Why was that? Was it the attitude towards gay beatings at the time, or was it just general inefficiency? A combination of a lot, really. Um, Scott Johnson's case, who is um, still very current uh, and has just been described as a probable murder by the coroner, finally, uh, is a perfect example. I don't think it was... The police... Scott Johnson was found dead in 1988 at the bottom of a cliff in Manly, just up North Head, stark naked. Very unusual, I would have thought. Clothing allegedly folded at the cliff top. Police turn up. Detectives... I have not been able to find out if a detective was called, which is the normal circumstance. We'll come up and have a look and see if there's anything suspicious. Uh, within a couple of days, it was passed off as a suicide. File closed. I've looked at the original investigation of it, or the original reporting of it, and it seems the coppers just missed it completely. I would have thought that if you found a body stark naked at the bottom of a cliff, you would start to think that something might have been amiss. But they don't appear to have. It's just been passed off as a suicide. Who cares? Did they recognise the area as being a gay beat? It's a very interesting point. The police subsequently have said for years that it wasn't a gay beat. There's no report that's a gay beat. No, it's not a gay beat. I was a copper at Manly ten years beforehand. I can assure you it was a gay beat. And that almost every copper worth's assault knew it was a gay beat. But the institutional response was, no, it wasn't, and we had no idea. That's complete crap. Right, so um, the police, the gays, and also the, their assailants all knew it was a gay beat. Oh, yeah, yeah. Northhead was quite common, not only as a gay beat, but a, be, a, a lover's lane. Right. And I you remember driving up there at night saying, you know, just let them go, who cares? So if it's two blokes in a car, a, husband, a male and female couple, who cares? Just, just be discreet. Um, so, yes, we knew what it was, but they decided to steadfastly deny that Scott Johnson was killed at a gay beat for reasons best known to the thick heads of the New South Wales Police Force in that day. which And that story persisted for decades. It's only very recently they've acknowledged it. Yes, it might be. And the only reason they've acknowledged that is a lot of gay men have come forward and said, of course it was, and we saw coppers up there. So, yeah. 
Scott Johnson's brother um, became very successful financially yep. over in over in the US, and he seems to be one of the rare individuals who's had not only the time but the the money to pursue this over yeah. these decades. Are we making progress? No. Um, there's still an unwillingness of the New South Wales Police to acknowledge one their significant failures, and to be to be fair too, back in the 80s they did have some great successes. They did. There's a couple of coppers that come to mind who I've got to know when writing a book about them, uh, who did a good job. And it wasn't gay straight or whatever. It was the fact that someone has been hurt. There is a victim. We'll investigate it. It's what we do. I don't expect them to be partisan to your cause. I just expect them to do the best professional job they can. And those coppers are still outstanding. Um, but it's the ones who said, oh, yeah, a couple of poofters, who cares, um, risk you take when you go to places like that. And there weren't a lot of those, but there are certainly enough to be problematic. Um, but in the Scott Johnson case, his, his brother was is intriguing, and there was a really nasty bit of story circulate about Steve Johnson, the brother, using his vast money and political influence to try and sway the New South Wales police. I mean, that's just, that's just deeply unpleasant. Uh, play the victim, shall we? The truth of the story is when Steve Johnson in 1988 came out here, he didn't have a bean to his name. He was, um, the Johnson family came from pretty rough upbringing in Los Angeles, single parent, no money, kids working from the time they could actually get a job. Um, the both the brothers just happened to be bloody geniuses and brilliant at mathematics. Steve at the Scott had just got his uh, PhD confirmed when he died, so hardly a suicide potential. He was as happy as all get out. Um, his brother had no money in those days. He came out here on pretty much borrowed funds and scratched his life savings together. Or, sorry, wiped out his life savings to get out here. Um, told by the police his brother had committed suicide. See you later. Um, what rankles in New South Wales is police is that Steve was at Harvard. He started talking to people. He met one of his fellow students, was a mature age bloke who was a detective at Scotland Yard. So he talked about it to him. And the detective said, well, this doesn't work. There's something horribly wrong. They've screwed up in Australia. So Which, what, what yeah. was it about Scott's case, though, that, or at least the way he was found, that was particularly unnerving, that suggested this wouldn't be, or at least it should be considered as not being? just an obvious suicide one he was naked which is unusual in suicides and you look at him and think why would you take your clothes off then throw yourself off a cliff um, not great um, and then very early on when Steve managed to cause a little few ructions because friends of friends at Harvard knew people in politics who then sent a little letter out to the New South Wales Police Force saying um, could you have a look at this we've got some misgivings which caused all sorts of strife um, because one of the people who wrote on his behalf was Edward Kennedy, who wrote to the ambassador now here and bounces through channels. And all of a sudden, the New South Wales police see a blue coming their way. So they did an investigation a couple of six, six weeks or so after the Scott died. And his partner at the time said something along the lines of, oh, he once threatened suicide off the Golden Gate Bridge. Well, that was manna from heaven, I, in my view. The police have seen that and said, oh, beauty, suicide, that fits with our original plan, off we go. Right, they have what they can suggest is a profile and they're done. Drop the blade on the bulldozer, all sorted, thanks very much, let's shove it into touch, shall we? Which they did. Um, it wasn't until years later when Steve starts seeing the articles that started emerging in around about 2004, 2005, as a result of a bloody good police investigation looking at these historic crimes, 
that he thinks, hang on, my brother may have been one of those victims. By that stage, Steve has um, discovered an algorithm which allows us to send photographs via email and other such methods. So Steve has gone from having the bum hanging out of his trousers to being rather well off. Um, and rather upset that the New South Wales Police Force had done such a crap job. And, and by this stage also there was evidence of other, um, other instances. Yeah, the, um, the, the catalyst for Steve Johnson's interest was the coroner's inquest in the early 2000s. The police called it Operation Taradale, um, uh, conducted by... The catalyst for that was um, the death of Ross Warren, or the disappearance of Ross Warren, a newsreader from Wollongong who'd ventured out one evening after a couple of drinks, had gone out to um, St Mark's Park, which is between Tamarama and Bondi Junction on Sydney's eastern beaches, and he disappeared. Very responsible kid, uh, 24, 25, career in front of him, um, utterly responsible, doesn't turn up on the Sunday night. Um, his mates that he was staying with in Sydney that night um, report him, try to report him missing. The coppers aren't spectacularly interested. They go hunting and they find his car adjacent to this well-known gay beat. They know it's a gay beat. Everyone knows it's a gay beat. Um, the coppers dismiss it completely and one very callous detective who was supposedly investigating him says, oh, don't worry, body will wash up eventually or something like that. It's not even that he'll turn up. It's literally the body will turn yeah. up. Yeah. Um, you know, we've called out this, we've called out the helicopter, we've called out the water police. Well, apparently they didn't. Um, the investigation is handled very clumsily. The coroner was brutally um, scathing of it years later. But Ross's death passes. Um, years later, his mother had been writing to the coppers for years saying, can we, you know, what's happening? Can we do something? What's going on? And the police ignored it or sent her on a bureaucratic circuit. Um, she got nowhere. Um, eventually, one of her, she pleaded with members of parliament, with senior coppers, with this, with that. She tried everybody. Eventually, her letter, in utter frustration, lands, about uh, 2001, 2002 or something or other, lands at Rosebay Police Station and crosses the desk of a bloke called Steve Page. Fantastic detective. Steve looks at it, thinks, ah, a bit old, anyway, calls up the files, has a look at it and thinks, oh my God what's happening and he starts linking other mysterious deaths or disappearances together he digs deeper and he finds some investigations conducted properly and professionally others investigations like john russell's death who was found flat in his back dead with someone's hair in his hand has been passed off as an accident when drunk didn't that hair go missing? Yes, in that wonderful way that we keep exhibits the the hair which these days would have provided dna is missing gone. Here is a guy lying flat on his back on a rock at the bottom of a cliff. Yes, he was drunk when he went up there, but I'm not too sure they could never explain how he got a clump of hair in someone's hands. The police force do an investigation which was unspectacular, to put it politely. And I remember interviewing an old detective who was in uniform in those days, and he tells me that he was just appalled. He kept saying, it's a gay beat. We need to get up there and protect them. They're going to go there. Men will be there every night. We know gangs are preying on them. We need to spend time to at least give them a bit of safety. Ignored. Completely. Well, Mark's Park, who the venue you mentioned, you know, it seems to be that 
that seemed to be a trigger point for a series of these on an ongoing basis, not only where bodies were either mm. going missing or turning up washed up on the, on the shore, but even people like David McMahon, who was essentially ambushed while out for a jog one day. It's, again, it goes back to this straight. It's the logistics of it appeal to gay men. The logistics of it appeal to those two people who going, like to go and bash them. Mark's Park was prowled by people who kids who live around the Bondi area. It was also a popular meeting place for bashers who would come from the housing estates around Waterloo and Redfern. And it was all, what it was like sport at yeah. this stage. Uh, and the evening's entertainment. We'll go out and beat the shit out of somebody. They have a few drinks, maybe smoke some dope and go out and beat people. Um, and this, the current popularity, I suppose, of the gay cause in the newspapers. Um, is it really a crime? May have gone through their mind. Or is it just sorting them out? And that's the brutality of it all. Duncan, what's been the response to your book from the police? Uh, zero. Absolutely zero. Does that not surprise you? Oh, no, not in the slightest. They, oh, I didn't approach them for assistance with it. I sent them a couple of questions occasionally. That was about it. No response at all. From former coppers and the occasional serving copper too, you know, you get that lovely conversation saying, about time. Now, this is a dark part of our history that needs to be sorted and I remember I interviewed the um, former police minister, Michael Gallagher, who's an ex-copper I used to work with him. And I remember sitting down with him and he said to me, sorting this out now is the greatest opportunity the New South Wales police will ever have to try and heal some of the rifts of generations. And they failed. And he's completely and utterly on the money. Um, so, yeah, their, re their lack of reaction was pretty much expected. The police have a habit, if they don't like it, they might ignore it and they hope it goes away. I'm rather hoping we can keep stirring them on until we finally get maybe a parliamentary inquiry into seeing what went wrong and let's make sure it doesn't happen again. Duncan, it's, it's a fascinating story. It does need to be told and it's, it's terrifying for the fact that it's true and that so much of it remains unresolved and our only hope could be that perhaps it does inspire further investigation and we may see some sort of end to this. My hope in writing it, I suppose the ultimate goal of writing it, apart from shining a very light, a strong light on, these, on the problem, was the hope that it finally some bloke, 50 years old, who knows what he did in the mid-80s, finally thinks, I've got enough spine to come forward. I'll give some of these people up. Some of these people are murderers. They're still walking around. They're still free. They're enjoying their lives. Someone knows what... Sorry, a lot of people know what happened. And the oddity, too, just before I forget, one of the gangs, for example, that prowl the... Um, I think the gang that terrorised David McMahon up on the hill, up on um, around Bondi, was a gang not only of boys, but it was also girls egging him on. So finally, you know, writing this, someone may finally think, I need to tell the truth. And you're not protecting heroes, you're not protecting great people, you're protecting murderers. So get some spine, come forward and talk to us. And that's, I hope, they haven't done it yet, but you know, you never know. Duncan, thank you so much for coming in today. It's an important story that needs to be told. Thank you. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.